This is Hazard, a limited series about the impacts of climate change on Superfund sites here in New Jersey. I'm Jordan Gospore, an investigative journalist from Texas. The Hazard team has spent the past three months digging through the muck of contaminated sites to give you a clearer picture of what's at stake if these places aren't cleaned up soon. I know I've learned a lot about New Jersey. There's more to the state than what I saw on The Sopranos and the Superfund program in general. I think I'm ready to get that PhD in environmental sciences. Before I hit the books, I want to share with you some of my favorite clips from the first four episodes of Hazard. Alfredo Gomez is a director with the GAO's Natural Resources and Environment Team. His team found that more than 60% of the country's Superfund sites are in places vulnerable to climate change. Now, interestingly, uh, in New Jersey, that percentage was a lot higher. It was 88% of the Superfund sites are located in places that may be affected by one or more of these climate change effects. The report didn't look into how climate change may impact cleanup efforts. As long as the pollution remains, hurricanes and flooding are a major threat to sites like American Cyanamid. And to our health. If this site isn't secured before another hurricane or flood, it could spread chemicals through the river and wind. If chemicals get in the groundwater, it can be difficult to track. So based on what has happened, we're concerned with the flooding event. We've been fortunate that nothing has happened, but, you know, what's the future going to look like? All right. I just spent the past few minutes throwing around a lot of terms I recently learned how to pronounce correctly and served up a hearty helping of acronym soup. So I'm going to take a step back and break down the basics. Superfund. Emphasis on fund. Not fun was a program created by the federal government in 1980 to help pay for the cleanup of hazardous waste sites. At the time, the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, thought there were relatively few toxic sites in the country, but officials soon discovered thousands of contaminated sites. So they created a national priorities list to figure out which places needed to be cleaned up first. It didn't take long for the American cyanamide site to be included on this list. Some of the chemicals the company made are now known carcinogens. This link was made back in 1978, when more than 1,000 workers at the Bridgewater plant went on strike. More than 300, 1,300 workers at American Cyanamid's Bridgewater plant walked out on strike today, protesting low wages and poor safety conditions. Local 111 of the International Chemical Workers Union claims the company has ignored complaints about high rates of bladder cancer and lung disease among workers. Cyanamid wouldn't comment on that charge, but a spokesman says the company can't grant the 75 cent an hour pay hike because, said said the presidential spoke, because, said the union, it exceeds President Carter's wage and price guidelines. In September 1983, American Cyanamid was one of the first places to be designated a Superfund site. That's no real surprise. For nearly a century, numerous companies used this 575-acre site for chemical and pharmaceutical manufacturing. The toxic waste from this production was stored in human-made ponds called impoundments. Eventually, the ponds leached chemicals in the soil and groundwater. There are 27 of these ponds at American Cyanamid, 
and the EPA says 16 of these bad boys have contributed to the pollution on the property. But the granddaddy of them all are impoundments one and two. The EPA gave the ponds numbers to keep track of them all. These two ponds are considered by the EPA to have the highest concentrations of hazardous materials. They contain acid tar sludge. That's a byproduct of the site's days as an oil refinery. Just goes to show, sometimes the past sticks with you. At its peak, the American cyanamid complex spread over 600 acres across Bridgewater and Boundbrook. The company was once one of Somerset County's largest employers. They hired more than 5,000 people who produced dyes, pigments, and other chemicals by the trainload. Peggy Fussell's grandmother worked for American Cyanamid as a telephone switchboard operator. For hours a day, her grandmother, Ann Fussell, would watch for calls that appeared as lights on a board. At the end of her shift, she would walk the few minutes to her home. She was what was called a, a hard luck story because she was a single mom, three kids. And so the corporation, the company, subsidized her housing. So we lived on a street that was for people who had fallen on hard times. One of her children was Peggy's dad, who ended up working odd jobs at American Cyanamid and living right next to his mom. The reason I grew up there was because my dad grew up there. And then when my mother was pregnant with me, he was visiting his mother and found out that someone was moving out. And he said, I am looking for housing now. Can I live in this house until I find something better? Until the baby's born. That baby was me. On the surface, the two-bedroom, one-bath bungalow on Midland Avenue seemed like an idyllic place to grow up. One of the perks of living there was that we had a backyard and then behind the yard were um, fields and woods and um, lots of places to play. I felt like I grew up in the country even though I was in pretty much suburban New Jersey. Photos of Peggy as a child show her standing in her backyard. In another one, she's wearing sunglasses and taking her dolls for a stroll down the block. The seasons change. She's taller, with longer hair. But the one constant in this scrapbook is the American cyanamid factory, looming large over Peggy's childhood. In the winter, Peggy says she would skate on this beautiful flat pond near her house. Other ponds had leaves and other vegetation in its waters, but not this one. The ponds were just murky. You know, they didn't look like they would make you sick or anything. They just look like murky ponds. Those ponds stored hazardous waste for American cyanamid. Peggy says her skating days ended early when her parents realized what was going on. Even so, it was hard to escape the company's traps from the past. There was an orchard. When I was very young, there were cows and a dairy at the end of the street. And when you think about what it means to drink milk from cows that are eating grass that's on the grounds of a chemical factory. is kind of, And we had a well. We had well water. Now, at 60 years old, Peggy wonders if the well water she drank as a kid 
may have been contaminated by American cyanamide. I don't think those conversations were had. I know that they weren't had in my house. What the family did talk about was her aunt's work at American Cyanamid. Mary Louise Vega was a research scientist at the plant. Her claim to fame was inventing a type of glow stick used by the military called Sialum. The joke was, you know, at some point we're all gonna glow. American Cyanamid officially turned off the lights in 1999 when they stopped manufacturing in Bridgewater. Then, poof. Buildings were demolished the following year. And today, it's hard to imagine a sprawling factory on the site. Where Peggy's grandmother and aunt worked, Sanamid's offices and labs, is now a shopping center and a stadium for the minor league Somerset Patriots. Peggy's childhood home is now a Starbucks. So the Diamond Alkalide site, it was the largest producer of Agent Orange in the world. And everyone talks about this one thing, a white powder that like covered the whole factory. You know, like everything was covered in this white dust and it was like a sticky dust. So if you walked in, you would get it all over your shoes. Um, That dust was dioxin. And so it was being carried all over the neighborhood. Maria Lopez Nunez is leading the fight for environmental justice as an organizer with the Ironbound Community Corporation, or ICC. The ICC was started 52 years ago when residents created a daycare center. They later fought against the construction of a garbage incinerator from coming into the neighborhood. And it's been a wild ride ever since. Agent Orange, named for the orange identification stripes painted on its barrels, contained dioxin. That's a highly toxic chemical that has no color or odor. Dioxin was among the toxic chemicals found in 1978 at one of the most notorious Superfund sites, Love Canal. In 1983, 14 years after Diamond Alkali closed, dioxin was found in the Ironbound. In the swimming pool, there was dioxin discovery. That's Nancy Zach. She's talking about the Hayes Park swimming pool. Dioxin was found around a drain there when officials were testing the area for the chemical. The dioxin was discovered as technicians looked for the possible spread of contamination from the former diamond alkali plant one half mile away. Before the discovery, there were reports that some of the children who swam there developed skin rashes. Nancy and her husband, Arnold Cohen, have been activists in the Ironbound for decades. Arnold says the discovery of dioxin in the neighborhood didn't come as a complete surprise. On the one hand, you knew there's a lot of toxic industries along the river, but yet the extent of it was unbelievable. That, you know, you could talk about the largest concentrations of dioxin found anywhere in soil blocks away from where we live was completely shocking. The Ironbound is a tight-knit community that's already faced a disproportionate number of environmental hazards. It's not a coincidence that low-income and minority communities are the ones living next to these hazardous sites that no one wants in their backyard. Advocates call this environmental racism. Within the tangle of roads, railways, and highways, there are people just trying to live their lives Residents of the Ironbound are predominantly Hispanic, and the neighborhood has long been an immigrant community. Unfortunately, 
this isn't surprising. Most of New Jersey's Superfund sites are in the backyards of low-income or minority communities who already face a greater risk of health problems. And now, climate change threatens to damage Superfund sites like Diamond Alkali and spread pollution even further. There aren't many studies looking at the long-term health effects of dioxin. It wasn't until, you know, my own family was impacted by the sort of things that we know happen, you know, when you live in a neighborhood with pollution. Melissa Miles is the executive director for the New Jersey Environmental Justice Alliance. When you're pregnant and you live too close to roadways uh, that have diesel pollution, when you have children in a community that has an issue with lead in the water, these things started to manifest in my own family. And that's when it really became more of a mission for me to make sure that other parents in this community, you know, knew what was happening and that they had a voice and that they could stand up and fight for their community that they lived in. She was involved in the passage of the state's landmark environmental justice bill in 2020. The bill requires companies to get approval from the State Department of Environmental Protection before building, expanding, or renewing permits in low-income neighborhoods. Companies also have to hold public hearings and provide a statement on how the project's going to impact residents before they get approved. This is all well and good now, but things like impact statements and approval from the DEP just weren't top of mind when the Diamond Alkali plant closed in 1969. About a year after dioxin was discovered in the Ironbound, the Diamond Alkali site was added to the Superfund list in 1984. Over the years, the buildings on the property were demolished and some of the toxic waste was buried there underground. The property itself was capped with concrete and gravel, but a 17-mile stretch of the Passaic River remains so polluted that even trying to clean it up may prove to be disastrous. A thick layer of dioxin from the factory is buried 12 feet in the river. Locals call this sticky sludge black mayonnaise. Trying to get down to this layer of dioxin could cause the chemical to spread up and down the river. There's a lot of talk about whether or not this sediment should be removed, and if it is removed, if it can be done safely. Right now, cleanup plans call for dredging some of the contaminated sediments from the river. That muck would then be treated at a facility that hasn't been built yet in the Ironbound. The remaining sediment would be capped with a thick layer of sand. Capping is a common way of cleaning up Superfund sites. The idea is to prevent another storm from kicking up the contaminated sediment. This plan has mixed reviews. This is Jordan Gospore, your Hazard in J host. Pulling together this best of compilation has gotten me reflective on what got me here. And I want to give a shout out to an organization near and dear to my heart, Girls Right Now. That's right, with a W. I joined Girls Right Now as a mentor three years ago when I was having what I call my quarter life crisis. I didn't know if I wanted to stick with podcasting or go back to being a digital reporter. I had a friend slash frenemy win a Pulitzer and I was getting down on myself. 
That is, until I was matched with my first girls right now mentee. It helped me revisit all the reasons I'm a journalist. To work with and engage communities, hold people and organizations accountable, and help enhance the narrative. A Girls Right Now mentee inspired me to create Hazard and Jay. Another helped with some of the show's episode research. My experience with them shows how journalists can use writing and their voice to build empathy and connect with others. That's what I'm doing with Hazard and Jay, and that's what others can do through mentorship with Girls Right Now. Girlsrightnow.org. That's girls, W-R-I-T-E, now.org. Driving to Ringwood, New Jersey. Okay, being in the passenger seat while my colleague is driving us to Ringwood, New Jersey, I saw numerous signs about keeping the area's water pure. The irony of these signs wasn't lost on me. See, for more than 50 years, Ringwood has been home to a toxic dump that's impacted the land and its groundwater. Well, the dump is specifically in Upper Ringwood, a community in the borough of Ringwood. Folks in Ringwood are proud of the fact that iron from their mines helped the American army during the Revolutionary War. And they told me about how George Washington visited the area. Ringwood Manor was originally built to house iron workers. The building later became the summer home to the wealthy Cooper Hewitt family. Today, its vast grounds are part of Ringwood State Park. A lot has changed here over the centuries. The mining stopped decades ago, and many people have come and gone. That is, except a sect of the Ramapo Muncie Lenape Nation called the Turtle Clan, who continue to live in Upper Ringwood. Their roots in the area stretch back to at least the Revolutionary War. Our people went back to the 1700s yes. and way back, even, even further, mm -hmm. you know, because I remember all this area here. It used to be a college. They call it Green Engineering Camp. Oh, I remember that. Mm -hmm. And all the young teenagers, I used to hang out with them, and they were college students. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it was nice. It was heaven. It was be Ringwood was beautiful. A lot of changes. Ringwood was beautiful. But now I go up and where I was born and raised, I look around, I'm like, man, what the heck happened? This is my mother's church. I met with Dennis DeFries Sr. and his neighbor Val Gunn at the Church of the Good Shepherd in Upper Ringwood. It's a small Episcopal church that's been a gathering place for the Ramapo for a long time. This church has been in existence since the 1700s. That's Val. She's about to turn 70 and is a proud grandma. When we met, she was wearing a hot pink t-shirt that read Grandma with the list of her grandchildren's names. It reminded me of my Nana. Life for Val's grandchildren is very different from when she was a child. Many of her childhood memories include exploring the surrounding woodlands. What stuck out to her was the water. We used to walk down the path and we'd get water. We, we would carry, carry water from the spring. And you talk about delicious, absolutely yeah, great water. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was the best in the world, yeah. I'm telling you. You're but right. we had to carry our water when we were kids growing up. But we did it. Like Val, Dennis grew up in Upper Ringwood. He remembers drinking the water flowing near his childhood home. I drank the water and I never got sick. All the time I drank it, me and my brothers. That is, until Ford Motor Company started dumping thousands of tons of paint sludge and other waste from the company's assembly plant in nearby Mawa, into and around the abandoned mines of Upper Ringwood. For years in the 1960s and 70s, Ford's plant in Mawa churned out hundreds of cars in a day. 
Ford was making the American dream come true for some people across the country and creating an American nightmare for the Ramapo people. Rangoon Red, Brittany Blue. These were some of the colors of paint that were sprayed on Ford's cars. The droplets that didn't stick would collect on the ground and in drains beneath the cars on the assembly line. And that excess paint was much of what was collected and dumped in Upper Ringwood. In 1984, the 500-acre Ringwood mine site was added to the Superfund list. Ford was responsible for paying to clean up the site, and they did it in record time. The EPA gave the site a clean bill of health when they delisted it in 1994. It took 11 years to clean up the site, and it'll take even more time to understand how it could have gone so wrong. Under normal circumstances, cleaning up a Superfund site is cause for celebration. But Ringwood Mines was never really cleaned up in the first place. Even after the site was delisted, residents continued to find paint sludge in their yards and scattered throughout Upper Ringwood. I met Jan Barry at the Ringwood Mines Superfund site. What caught my attention, besides the fact that somebody had tied colored uh, ribbons along that whole area because they were creating a hiking trail. And I said to the EPA person who was there, you know, there's going to be kids walking down this hiking trail. No interest. We then went over on the far side of this community on the end of Mine Road. There was a house. We go to the front yard. And they had paint sludge heaving out of the grass in front of the kids' play equipment. It was the same house that had the paint sludge in the backyard some years before. And at that point, frankly, I lost it. I said, you've got to be kidding me. We're back to the same place that you said you cleaned up. And at that point, I started writing memos to editors. Jan was one of the reporters with the Bergen Record that, along with the Ramapo, helped expose the large amounts of pollution that remained on the site in a series of articles called Toxic Legacy. We found internal documents where they say, well, the state probably won't take a close look at this. And then it was a housing organization nonprofit that built these newer houses over here, and they definitely won't take a close look at this gift to them. Aren't we so nice we're giving them this nice contaminated land? And they had nasty things to say about these local people, using the terminology that only local area people would know to use. So Ford was already into the local prejudice against Ramapo Indians. And I guess that plays a huge part in what's going on here. The thing about paint sludge is that it looks like a plain old rock. Nothing to worry about. But break off a chunk, and it smells like fingernail polish remover. It's the acetone inside that's still potent. As you break it open, it's so fresh inside. The core never dried. So the chemical smell just erupts. Ah... I had a piece of this stuff on my desk in the record for a long time until I met some meeting in which somebody said, you know, there's a chemical thing coming off of this all the time. Stick it into a paper bag and then take a breath. Paint sludge contains a mixture of toxic chemicals like lead, arsenic, and chromium, among others. Levels of lead in paint sludge near homes have been found to be 100 times the levels the EPA considers acceptable. Wayne Mann, 
a Ramapo community leader who grew up in Upper Ringwood, says kids even played with the paint sludge, not knowing what it was. He remembers one of the times officials came by Upper Ringwood to inspect the site before it was put back on the Superfund list. This is what they saw. The one yard where they, they came, a kid was sitting, banging on something, playing with his trucks. Well, what he was banging on was a giant piece of sludge, lead. Another yard, kids were out swinging on a swing set. All around that yard and swing set was all protruding through the ground, chunks of lead. It's all forwards. Well, that was supposed to be all cleaned up. Many of Upper Ringwood's residents say contamination from the paint sludge has made them sick. There are cases of skin rashes, severe headaches, bleeding from the eyes, nose, and throat, and various cancers. So many people have cancer, Val says, that locals call Van Dunk Lane Cancer Row. It earned the grim nickname because each house on the street has been impacted by cancer in one way, shape, or form. When Val's nephew, Colin, died from a rare form of cancer in 2001, that's when locals really started to notice how widespread the health issues were in Upper Ringwood. My nephew, my brother's son, developed, uh, it was called Ewing sarcoma when he was 10. And he developed that. And that's how everything started. He died a year later. He lived for one year from the time that he, he developed it. And then after that, it was like everybody started getting cancer. Yeah. A century of pollution led the state of New Jersey to ban fishing and eating blue claw crabs from the lower Hackensack River. I'm imagining these large mutant crabs scaring swimmers and jumping out of the water onto boats. But most of the time, they look just like normal crabs, except for all that mercury inside them that can cause damage to the nervous system. I went to Laurel Hill County Park in Secaucus to take a tour of the famed Hackensack River. There were signs in different languages warning park goers about the ban. Blue claw crabs in Lower Passaic River and Newark Bay Complex may cause cancer. I can understand why people would still want to fish in the river, despite the toxic crabs that are just begging to have a horror movie made about them. The water had this strange beauty, and I kept getting Henry David Thoreau vibes. Though me becoming one with nature was short-lived because of the beep, beeping noises from the nearby construction of a luxury apartment building. It was a similar way of thinking about development and progress that laid waste to the Hackensack River to begin with. The EPA found that a 19-mile stretch of the lower Hackensack's riverbed is filled with contaminants. Walter Mugden with the EPA says these toxins can wash ashore when it floods and spread all over the place. So the biggest concern in that case is that major storms can mobilize the mud. They can re-entrain the mud into the water. If you have flooding, that sediment, uh, that mud that's in the, entrained in the water can get onto the land. It can get into people's homes, uh, into buildings. And uh, it can also move stuff around. So it gets from an area that has more contamination. It might move into areas that were less contaminated and actually make them worse. This spring... After years of study, the EPA formally nominated the Hackensack to the Superfund list. If the process goes as planned, the river will become New Jersey's 115th Superfund site in the fall. Being designated a Superfund site means the EPA can begin the years-long process of cleaning up the river. And although there's no guarantee the river will ever be clean enough to eat the blue claw crab, for Captain Bill Sheehan with the Hackensack Riverkeeper, 
it's worth a try. One of the most natural things that humans can do is catch a fish and eat it. And yet we're told it's not safe to do that. And if we let this river try to clean itself and, you know, shunting aside climate change and future impacts and everything else, if the river's just left to be itself, it could take 150 to 200 years to get to the point where it would be safe to eat a crab or eat a fish. And that means several generations of people living here will not have full beneficial use of the river. By putting it on the Superfund list, even if it takes 20 or 25 years to get it cleaned up, that's one generation's lifetime. Back in the day, people thought the wetlands were, well, more like a wasteland than a place of tranquility. It was land they thought couldn't be used for anything other than a dump. Oh, and they dumped. There was a reason this area was considered the armpit of the Northeast. In 1970, there were 51 different landfills operating in the Meadowlands. But it's more than just a trash problem. The Meadowlands is dotted with some of the worst toxic sites in the country. And much of the pollution in the Meadowlands comes from five nearby Superfund sites. You got Berry's Creek, a six-mile tributary of the Hackensack River that has had some of the highest mercury readings in the world. Much of the toxins there came from the Ventron Velsicle operation in Karlstadt and Woodridge. The company processed mercury from 1929 until 1974. Then there's Universal Oil Products in East Rutherford, where various chemicals were produced from 1930 to 1979. Also, scientific chemical processing in Karlstadt, where harsh chemicals were used as part of dealing with scrap and waste. And Diamond Head Oil Refinery, AKA Oil Lake in Kearney. That one kind of speaks for itself. Things started to change, slowly, for the Meadowlands in the 50s, when the New Jersey Turnpike brought new interest to the area. State leaders now saw economic potential in the trash-filled marshes. The Hackensack Meadowlands Development Commission was formed in 1968, and the 70s brought a crackdown on illegal dumping. As the dumps closed one by one, new development sprung up around them. A stadium for the New York Giants and New York Jets, a horse racing track, an arena for the New Jersey Nets, and most recently, American Dream, the nation's second largest mall. Yes, that's the outro music. But this isn't goodbye. It's see you in the fall when we release more episodes of Hazard NJ. In the meantime, if you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe to Hazard NJ wherever you get your podcasts. Hazard NJ is an NJ Spotlight News production. The show is written, edited, and hosted by me, Jordan Gosporé. Jamie Kraft is the executive producer with NJ Spotlight News. Our executive in charge of production is Joe Lee. Michael Saul Warren is our associate producer. Chris Panza is our production assistant. Chloe Matisse is our production manager. Our sound designer and engineer is Mark Bush. Music for Hazard NJ was composed by Nick Pennington. 
Artwork by Matthew Fleming. Support for Hazard and Jay is provided by Peril and Promise, a public media reporting initiative covering the human stories of climate change and its solutions, with major funding provided by Dr. P. Roy Vagelos and Diana T. Vagelos. You can learn more at pbs.org forward slash Peril and Promise.